you're tuned in to the Neo Academy podcast. My name's Mark, and welcome to another episode of Neo Chats, deep dive conversations into the culture of education. Hi, how's it going? <laughs> Right, so thanks, thanks for being here. Um, uh, just another neo chats on the subject of uh, of innovation tonight. And um, Alex, would you like to just just introduce yourself to our listeners, just who you are, what you do? Yeah, sure. My name is Alex Moore, uh, based in sunny Dorset, which is in the UK, England. And I teach at a school called Shaftesbury School, which is in the UK a secondary school. We have a thousand students, and we're part of a larger academy uh, chain that has seventeen schools, which represents over five thousand students. Wow. around about 800 staff so yeah that's me that's where i'm based and my role is lead teacher of innovation of teaching and learning so it's my job to go out and find the most cutting edge pedagogies and try and marry them with best teachers which is a pretty cool job <laughs> thanks so much for being here today alex and and again i think you're you're doing great things from what we've uh, seen before and i think the audience is going to really like today's uh sharing from your end so thank you for being here welcome thanks thanks for having me i'm thinking about that phrase you've used the cutting edge because I, I i seem to remember using it elsewhere as well and uh, that's the first thing i would like to ask you is um you're talking about cutting edge in terms of pedagogies no uh, pedagogical approaches or um, both yeah so technology and and sort of uh, pedagogy is two things that i'm really interested in i think when they work together you get the perfect harmony of just fantastic learning experiences but sometimes obviously you can have loads of amazing technology but if it's not particularly impactful or isn't being delivered well by highly skilled practitioners then it can kind of fall by the wayside and that's what i kind of make my whole uh, life in school and my, my, my work about trying to avoid those types of experiences so i mean if you're if you're sort of bridging the technology pedagogy gap which is a definite barrier to progress because well I mean, in my experience in education, teachers are quick to write off technology as kind of tokenistic and things because there's a gap with the pedagogical support and things. So it's easy to say, oh, that's just, you know, yet another app and, oh, we've all got to have iPads now and whatever. And but it's actually, it's got to be supported by a longer term strategy. But um, what I'd like to ask you is, I mean, you know, within the, and I'm going to use the word confines of, you know, Ofsted inspections and, you know, uh, these kind of reports and tables and you know so it's the school inspection culture um how do you how do you manage to sort of reconcile what you would call cutting edge innovation with the confines of a tradition traditional system right? how how do you to what extent can you maneuver i mean you're kind of flying under the radar with a lot of it are you pushing boundaries or no that's an amazing question i think there's quite a few layers to it so i'll try and unpick it and if i miss anything come back to me but essentially i'm yet to meet an ofsted inspector and in the uk we have a sort of an inspection framework called ofsted who they're like the watchdog for the government to keep an eye on what's happening in schools essentially and they come in every three to four years depending on how your school's doing and they they look at lessons they look at data and they form a judgment about your school which obviously has quite an impact on uh, people's perceptions of, of your school uh, in the local community and further afield so firstly, um, we never really do anything for Ofsted. I've always been of the mind that if you're doing something that's having an impact and the students are on board and the learning is top class, world-class learning, then Ofsted will come in and they'll be really impressed. And if 
data is kind of an end product that they use to measure their outcomes. But if the process of what they see is working and they see students that are switched on, engaged, passionate about their learning, I'm yet to see an inspector walk away and say, well, that was a gimmick or that was a fad. <laughs> Most of the time or all of the time that I've seen them, certainly in my lessons and some of my colleagues, they've been impressed with cutting edge technology if it serves a purpose and if it's sort of creating really purposeful learning in the classroom. And that's what I'm really into. You, you mentioned that whole idea about technology can be a bit fatty and the ed tech business as a whole, I think, is a bit guilty of these bombastic statements. Oh, we've got the next great app and it's going to transform education forever <laughs> and I think there's a debate there about what constitutes what I call warm technology and disruptive technology and disruptive technology excuse me is okay if it's disruptive in a positive way but what you were alluding to is the latest app that crashes whilst everyone's trying to use it and the teacher then thinks right I'm never using that again that was embarrassing I've lost faith in that app and they, they ditch it and they leave it and then, that, then that's that Whereas I think what I'm about and what we're about uh, where I work at Shaftesbury is, is embedding more long-term change through technology and really looking at the ed tech that is warm. So fantastic ed tech that is well thought out, that has been worked on by ed tech companies with educators rather than ed tech companies just going for it alone. And then bringing that to the classroom and, and doing some action research and speaking to the students as the key actors in the learning and saying, well, come on then, guys, what did you think of that VR app? Oh, it was rubbish, sir. Don't <laughs> use that again. Or actually, it was really amazing and it made that 10 minutes of the lesson unforgettable. So I think there's a lot there to unpick. And essentially, I guess the moral of the story is don't do stuff for Ofsted, but when they come in, let them see a true representation of what's going on and just point them to the students. Like, let them go and speak to the students. And the, the students always tell the truth. They always tell, you know, what, what it feels like to be using this stuff. So, yeah. Wow. <laughs> It, it, it resonates a lot with another chat that we actually uh, had on uh, around innovation as such. And, and I think it's, it's really important to, to give the voice to the students. Uh, and and you're, you're saying it very, very clearly. It's a matter of understanding that even if administrators or professors might think that a certain ed tech solution is the best for the class, in any case, at the end, it's the students who make the, the final decision. So I guess um, a, a question uh, for you, Alex, would be um, how would you actually recommend to other um, teachers or other school administration who are in the process of integrating this, uh, these new features or, or new ed tech solutions in the classroom, uh, but are actually afraid to fail? What yeah, would you yeah. say to them? That's a great question too. I think um, there's a couple of things to sort of pick up there. I mean, firstly, we find ourselves in a situation, don't we, currently where the teachers that we're kind of talking about that were a bit fearful of technology have had to get on board and embrace it because of the lockdown situations we find ourselves in. So we're in an interesting time really because teachers are starting to view technology now as an actual a tool that they need in order to teach the lessons currently. And I think post-COVID, like the classroom after the storm, if you like, it'll look very different. And I think those laggards, those people that were kicking and screaming and saying, we don't want to use technology, we want to stay to our traditional mindset, will actually be convinced that there's a place for them. And it's hard, it's really, really hard to convince those people. And I don't have the silver bullet, but I think one thing is to let them try it. So, for example, we've um, we've created something called a future classroom at Shaftesbury School, which is essentially 
a showcase test hub classroom. And it has no, no desks at all. It doesn't look anything like a traditional classroom. So imagine a time traveling child from 150 years ago coming into the year 2020, 2021. What would they recognize? Well, they'd instantly recognize a classroom because it has not changed in 200 years. It's fit for the industrial revolution. So my, my first motivation when I built the room at school was to rip that up and disrupt that model and have a space that is very agile, students can move around in it and they can work collaboratively in teams. The technology kind of came as a second thing. So the space came first. So I was looking at industry and I was looking at companies like Lush Cosmetics and Google and Innocent Smoothies and thinking, well, how do these guys get such amazing out outcomes? And it was about the learning environments and the philosophy they set up within their working spaces. So I kind of borrowed that idea first and created a really engaging room that people can move around and work in. And then I brought the technology in seconds. So the plan was to try to get the teachers on board with my ideas of how to teach in the room, first of all. And one of those ideas was not to teach from the front, which is a huge challenge for a lot of teachers because yeah. if you go to a normal classroom, it's 60 minutes, teachers stood up the front, direct instruction, kids are writing stuff down, students are writing stuff down. So we had to rip that up. And the biggest challenge for me and other teachers has been teaching from the side of the classroom and teaching from the back of the classroom. It's, it's really hard to let go of that and let the, the students kind of immerse themselves in the learning and then kind of come in as a coach when you need to, when they need your support and when they're stuck with something. And embedding that culture of failure in the students, it's okay to fail, it's a first attempt in learning. And then the, the staff too. And if anything, the students got it easier. They were like, yeah, okay, we'll, we'll have a go at this presentation. And if it goes totally wrong, we'll just do it again next lesson. And that's fine. But the staff were very much <laughs> like, well, we need to get this right. And if we don't get this right, there's going to be a consequence and we probably won't come back in here to teach again type thing. So, yeah. Great. Do you find that technology is actually now able to push pedagogy further rather than sort of supporting it and underpinning it? Yeah, I mean, I think in the UK, um, there's a real movement for uh, knowledge. There's a real interest in the knowledge-based curriculum and the work of Hirsch and Daisy Christodoudou. And there seems to be almost, I would call it an educational activism towards cognitive load theory and dual coding. And if you look at a lot of these these sort of educational research. I mean, Sweller's cognitive loads are over 50 years old and there's a real resurgence in the interest in this stuff. And whilst there's nothing wrong with it, I don't see an active place for cognitive load within a classroom. Like, how's it actually gonna benefit the students? Well, it's not. It might benefit the teacher having knowledge of it, but what I'm more interested in is what is gonna benefit the students. What can they see? What can they interact with? What can they learn from? So. I've, there's kind of the tra traditional and progressive argument there, and I sit right in the middle, actually, although I'm more on the progressive side. But what I'm more interested in is these warm technologies that can really push learning forward. And I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, one of the things that we've been using, and it's such a simplistic idea, but it's so effective, is something called a catch box microphone. And it's a soft, throwable microphone that you can throw across the classroom, and the students pick it up even the quietest students, it gives them a voice. And they just talk through it like, like here at this sort of level and it projects their voice through the speaker system. And what we've been able to do is get all of the staff and all of the students, even the quiet ones on board with this really simple idea. And that kind of morphed into thinking, well, if they're happy to speak, 
let's get them presenting because when they go into the world of work and university one of the first things they're going to have to do is pitch an idea so we changed our entire lesson structure so the first 27 minutes of the lesson are what you would call direct instruction but it's not necessarily me or the teacher stood at the front it is new content so it's new learning because you can't you can't do uh you can't do i guess understanding without knowledge i, I accept that so they need that knowledge initially then we have a bit of a break and, we're, and then we get into the students designing their presentation so every lesson finishes with a group of three or four stood up pitching their idea like they would do in industry and i believe that is the biggest gap that's missing in our current school system is that preparation for them beyond the world world of school into the world of work. That, that's fantastic, Alex. And I guess um, something interesting that I see in this in this practice again is that you're merging the sort of traditional uh, uh, mindset, but actually bringing that that uh, spice uh, with uh, with the uh, the creation of a, of a very simple idea but actually changing and breaking down the, the current uh, structure in the classroom. As you said, it starts by the space, but also by doing these little tiny things that are not the skyrocket uh, technology uh, thing to, to bring to the classroom, but actually little tiny things that are much more applied to the real world and they can slowly, slowly get in, in there. Um, my question to you this time would be, what about the, the transition that Nowadays, I believe uh, teachers have to cope with being the, you're teaching the Generation Z and you're going to have uh, as well Generation Alphas uh, going through, through their education. And they are a generation who were born with um, phones. They don't search on Google. They search on YouTube. They have a very strong um, power to, to convince the, the parents and it's their ideas that they looked on the phone and they're just communicating with you with a very high determination of what they want, right? Yeah. So how are you actually bringing the attention of the real world uh, for those kids, which would have jobs that don't even exist yet, and yet you're building on skills for that uh, future? How, how is that transition happening from what they really have now and what they will have in the years to come? That's a great question. And I could talk a lot here about the role of AI and how I see future of education kind of rolling out. I mean, I'll talk about the here and now initially. I think the biggest thing we can do as educators in school is embed this idea of interdisciplinary learning. So um, if you look at the STEM or the STEAM curriculum as it's known now, I'm a huge advocate of what that achieves. And if you take coronavirus as an example of a problem that the world didn't really have the knowledge on how to deal with, I mean, we've been through the Spanish flu. We, you know, had similar similar situations with world wars and other pandemics. But actually, it kind of it's brought the world to its knees, and no one had the knowledge to solve it quickly, and it's affected every country. So the idea of interdisciplinary learning, I think, will play a huge part in the students' futures. Because if you look at sort of the sustainable global development goals, climate change, students are so worried about climate change. They're so worried about how that's going to impact them in their lifetime. They're worried about automation and all the press that they read about the robots coming for their jobs. They're worried about overpopulation and will there be enough food? And those three things alone, our students 
speak about in our lessons and they're anxious about it and they want to come up with solutions they want to a bit like the Greta idea they want to take these ideas at face value and, and and take them on with logical solutions where our curriculum sits currently is subjects are siloed as you know into maths science german history french and students go from one lesson to the next and the, the teacher is very protective over that subject because they're accountable for the results for that cohort for example and I think the biggest challenge for us as educators in the future is breaking down those silos. And I'm not saying we need to go all project-based learning at all, but there needs to be some work done around interdisciplinary thinking and meta-knowledge. What is meta-knowledge? How do you know things across different platforms? So going back to the coronavirus example, there's history that you could apply to that. There's also science that you could look at. And beyond that, you could look at organizational skills of how you roll a vaccine out. So there's maths involved. So I think that the biggest problems in the world, like climate change and like overpopulation and enough food and automation, it's going to require interdisciplinary approach from the students in, in order to be able to cope with those problems in the future. And I think that's our job as educators to start installing that. really intrigued by you know you, you said that you kind of sit in the middle between traditional and progressive but more on the progressive side and then but then when you talk about things like transversal learning interdisciplinary learning um okay project-based learning is pretty much you know it's not normalized as such but it's, it's quite common in, in in secondary schools and things you know but um we are also talking to sort of schools that have actually said you know your classroom that you've created that is the school you know it's not um a space it, it, that's the way it works um there are no subjects there are no you know they they, they it's all project-based learning and it's all kind of building in skills um knowledge yes but but absolutely uh you know the skills and competencies is is the major focus you know so what i'm wondering again is like you know how compatible is that do you, do you think that um just to push you a little bit do you think there has to be a change in in that sense you know maybe even still within the, the broad confines of the traditional model i mean is there an, an argument for for example really kind of permanently breaking these silos between subjects and making learn learning completely transversal yeah i believe i believe there is and i think the, the starting point for that is at university level and it's really interesting that uh, this this year amongst the pandemic the first university in the world to teach an interdisciplinary degree has opened in london um, it's been opened by a chap called Ed Feeder, I think his name is. He's the uh, CEO of the uh, 21, School 21 in London. And I think I've got those details right. And essentially, all of us, when we go to university to do a degree, we do a sociology or an education degree. His new degree that they've designed in London is essentially an interdisciplinary degree in that you don't study a subject. You spend 50% of the time solving problems. And if that problem's climate change, because that's what you're interested in, then that's your problem. And if somewhere down the line that throws up an engineering aspect, then you start studying engineering. And the other 50% of the degree, and I find this absolutely fascinating, is about research skills. So understanding quantitative qualitative data, how to do a research methodology, research questions, hypotheses. So after three years of a degree and £9,000 of expenditure, you do not come out with a one subject you come out of a really broad perspective on and his whole, whole argument for this and i believe this is true is that it makes you way more employable 
because you are able to solve problems, think on your feet, you can work as a team, you can present, you're collaborative. Now, it, it starts with universities because schools are essentially creating uh, students to go on to that point. So if we can fix it here, that will then filter down to examinations and sort of the entire assessment system. And that's quite exciting too, because there's a lot of movement in the UK to get rid of exams as they are. The reason for that is because the algorithm that was used last year failed and loads of students didn't get the grades that they wanted, giving AI a really bad name, unfortunately. Yeah. Now, what about a system whereby those exams disappeared and students were assessed as a combination of project-based interdisciplinary learning and some micro tests? And rather than them all sitting exams in June, maybe a staged assessment point over a course of 14 months where students take the assessment when they're ready. That's another thing that's really exciting. And I think if it started at university, it would soon filter down because what we're doing is we're preparing people for the world of work and what work wants and what university wants filters down into school level. And I think it, that's where the change has to start. It's really difficult for someone like myself to impact a change in a traditional model. I can try stuff and people can be enthusiastic about the ideas, but this London interdisciplinary school, that sort of movement is where we're going to get the change from. Hmm. I really like what, what you're saying, Alex, because what we've been seeing with Mark before is actually the opposite, uh, meaning that it's not higher ed which is driving the change in K to 12, but vice versa. And, and actually, we're, we have seen uh, very solid foundations with more of a traditional learning system in, in higher ed, because, you know, it has always been that way. And that's it, right? Yeah, um, yeah. So it's very interesting to, to hear your, your point of view where it's the other way around. And basically, if they get that, that change, in any case, it will come down to, to K to 12. And, and that initiative you shared about uh, the, that, um, that school in London, fantastic. I had not heard about it, but now that you, you mentioned it, it makes total sense. I mean, I think it's, it's much more appealing if you don't graduate as an engineer as such, but as someone who can solve problems related to X or Y uh, fields, which is in your scope of engineering, which is your passion. And if that's the case, fantastic. We can certainly get more engagement as well. I think it can, it can work better in terms of, of dropout rates as well. And what you were bringing in terms of, of um, grades, absolutely yes. And big yes from, from my end. I think there's a whole new spectrum that needs to, to uh, be added in, in the current um, structure that we have both at higher ed and K-12 in this, in this occasion regarding grades. Because we're seeing it. You said it perfectly. Last year, I mean, we all were like how can this happen it's and, and and again you said it very well technology uh, i had a very bad name on that but the reality is that okay it's not only technology technology is the mean that failed to show uh, actually show that the problem is the the grading system and we're measuring everyone by the same level and you said it before as well with your um mic the, the throwing out the microphone at one uh, or the other kid you're measuring people by different uh, standards. The ones who are shy, in any case, they get to try it in a different way. And I think um, 
it's it's very interesting from my perspective to see how those little actions are actually combining um, towards a, 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 a drop down measure that you were explaining from your end from K to 12 and actually starting by the job market, then K to 12, sorry, the job market, then higher ed and then K to 12, rather than the the other way around. So I'm, I'm, I'm interesting in, in uh, seeing those, uh, I'm just sorry, in seeing those other developments from a, a higher education perspective that can have a positive impact on, on K to 12. And if there's any other um, initiative that you're, you've seen from your end and that you would like to, to share with us, I think that it's extremely, um, that's, that's called innovation for me uh, because that's not what we're seeing as much as from the K to 12 side. Why? Because on K to 12, we're integrating the fun side. We're integrating a little bit more of discovery and, and maybe also the audience teaching in K to 12 is younger than the ones teaching at a higher education level. So maybe they feel actually more comfortable in a certain way with trying new things with kids rather than what we talked about before being in a box so, or oh, oh my god maybe i'm i'm going to fail with this and how am i going to be perceived and this whole point goes back to one um conversation that i think it's really important to integrate as well which is um integrating mindfulness and my, my question to you would be now around this topic which is very important nowadays how are you seeing this not only for the students but also for the staff because of exactly what i was mentioning before that if anything, maybe the staff needs it more than, than the kids. So how are we actually integrating this, this new framework of, of mindfulness within the actual um, school of the future? Yeah, good question. And mindfulness has never been more important than now. It seems that coronavirus, there has been some positives from this pandemic. And this is one of them. It's okay to say that you need help. And um, they just released some statistics in the UK saying that one in every six children in the UK suffers from a mental health condition. And it's probably similar sort of numbers in terms of adults. So one of the initiatives, I talked about warm technology earlier on in the chat, and I'm just going to give a couple of examples of what I mean by that, because we're working with one of these companies and what I am seeing on the ground is transformational change. So I'll start by talking about that. There's an Australian company based out of Sydney called Curious. That's what they're called. And they have developed a social emotional um, program called WISE, just W-I-S-E. And what it does is it puts the teacher, the parent and the child through nine weeks of virtual reality simulated journeys through an oculus or pico headset so what happens is i put this on and i'm immersed in my own journey for 45 minutes and in that journey i get to meet the wise one the wise one is a fictional character who is based on a clinical psychologist in australia who talks you through breathing techniques centering um how to sort of block out negative thoughts and then you meet the boxlings which are more fictional characters and what we're finding, it's early days, but we've put some students through initial tests and they are, they're coming out feeling so much better about situations they're finding in life by doing VR journeys. And we're doing this in the future classroom. So we're embracing that warm technology. Yes, it's disrupting the learning, but it's doing it because it's serving a need. There is an issue with mental health and this technology is helping with that issue. So I think there's more awareness of mental health. There's more acceptance of it. But I think a lot of people don't know what to do about it. 
if I'm honest. And this I see, it hasn't come to market yet. I believe it's coming out in May. We're just trying it out. But I have been blown away by this programme. And the students have a workbook that they reflect and they do one lesson a week. It's also written for adults. So I've had a go at doing it. And it's phenomenal. Mm -hmm. You get transported to a beach in Australia, somewhere in Sydney, which is beautiful. And you're there and you're focusing on the dolphins and the waves and the rock falls. And it's so calming. And then have you heard of, you guys heard of a company called No Isolation? They're a Finnish startup company. You come across these guys? No. No. They've designed a robot head, right? It's about this big. And it's been used predominantly for terminally ill children that can't attend school. And the robot head goes into the lesson and the student sits at home with a tablet and the robot is their eyes and their kind of communication. So it can, in, in real time, it can see the learning. It can be involved in it, it can raise its hand. If it doesn't understand something, it goes red. And then the most beautiful thing about this warm technology is at break time, the other students take it out and socialize it. So the child at home is involved in that process. Now mm. that is the sort of technology that I'm interested in. And that's the sort of technology that we've got in our future classroom. And they're just two examples that I know of and that are working in education. And I think the future is about finding more like that, like the WISE program to try and help with things like mindfulness and having awareness of oneself, I guess. Fantastic. That, that's amazing. I mean, that, that to me is like, it. you know, we're talking about technology really augmenting the impact that you can have because stuff like mental health, like you say, I mean, a, a lot of teachers we're not equipped to deal with it. It's, you know, you, it, it's, a, it's a huge responsibility enough to have responsibility for someone's child, but to take responsibility for explicitly for their mental health and to actually kind of try to open something up and have a discussion is, is fraught with real difficulty, you know, and, and people, you know, a lot of teachers quite understandably say, no way, you know, I don't really want to try even try this. And the typical approach is being kind of, and I've written these things myself, you know, like a, um, journaling activities and stuff like that, you know, encouraging self-reflection. Let's watch a wee video on the negativity bias and understand where negative thoughts come from. And But in the end, it's still an uncomfortable environment to share anything about mental health. And the great thing about VR is it's like it's it's privacy. Yeah. It's, you, you, it's experiential, It but it's experiential in a very private way, which is, is fantastic. <laughs> try to build a culture of positivity around innovation and and you know i mean obviously it's a labor of love and patience yeah but i mean is there any particular approaches that you can take to really kind of get people on board bring people into the fold in their own time and on their own terms um but i mean how do, how do you do it can i be really honest here i do it through the students right. so um this future classroom is so exciting the, the, the students want to be part of it and <laughs> I keep getting told off by teachers because the, the students will go into their class like I was just chatting to a drama teacher the other day and she said like every lesson they say we're we going to the future classroom today to, to the teacher and she in the end she caved and I think she took them in there because she'd done the training but essentially I think you just have to show them the impact of how powerful these things are and the most powerful way in education to show any adult that is through the, through the eyes of the child and the voice of the child. So we do a lot of student voice. We do a lot of feedback. We ask them a lot of questions about things and 
how are they finding things? What would they like? And via our social media platforms, we run competitions. So they pick the chairs, they pick the lights, they pick the bag storage area. So we built a story, we built a narrative and the students bought into that and the staff bought into that, but not all of them. So in my school, we've got 60 staff. We've got 40 that have done the training to use the future classroom and 20 that haven't. And they don't want at the moment to come into the future classroom and they don't want to buy into that. They're quite happy as things are. Be really interesting to see post COVID whether that changes whether they revalue technology as something that's not threatening and invasive and a disruption to their day-to-day -day routine. Because I think if you think of teachers, we're a hugely intellectual profession, aren't we? We've all got degrees. Some of us have got two or three. And um, we're quite habitual. We tend to sit in our classrooms and get through the day because it's tough because we've got content that we've got to deliver. So disrupting that model is very, very difficult. And I think in, in answer to your question sim in simple forms, let the students, the same as the Ofsted inspectors, let the students tell them how they feel and what they love. And they will as well. They're so honest. Kids, kids don't lie. They say it as it is at face value and they will do that. And then let that be the convincing aspect. And if it doesn't convince them, it's not the end of the world. Because for me, as long as we're trying things and we're, we're having a go at these new technologies, that's what motivates me as an educator. And that's what's really exciting about the sort of position I find myself in. Yeah. Alex, and what about the buy-in from parents? How does that work? Because many of them, and, and we've, we've had this conversation with Mark before, some of them would say, oh, I would have loved to have this education myself, or others would be extremely reluctant. So what, what do you see from your end on that perspective? Um, social media is our easiest way to communicate with parents about the things we're doing in the future classroom. And for the last 18 months, we've had nothing but positive feedback coming back my student loved it oh how can how can my kid get in there how you know how can they do this one of the things we're going to do with wise which is really groundbreaking is for the first time i'm going to invite students and parents in to do the mental health app together wow so they will be there together it's going to be a very select research group and i'm going to use it as part of my doctoral research and what we're going to do i believe it's kind of in the pipeline but when school resumes and normality resumes and we can have people back in the building, the plan is to have a nine week program where the students and parents do it together. The parents do the adult version and the students do the, the teenage version, if you like, and they run parallel and they reflect together and they learn together. And for me, I see that as a really powerful journey that has the potential to make some really substantial change. And this is the sort of technology that I think post COVID will disrupt classrooms in a really good way i hope and i hope there's more like this that that come that come to fruition i really like that because you're involving the community i mean it's not only happening at school you're actually extending it to the parents and th they might be the the number one adopters uh, after this uh test right kids would love it because they it's it's natural for them but for the parents i believe it would be mind-blowing hopefully yeah. I'm not, I'm not wrong. Also, you know, if, they, if they're understanding the issues that are causing conflict at home, perhaps with their children, because children, yeah. teenagers are volatile, as we know, with hormones, then it's training them in the responses and the ways to deal with it too. So it's quite a, it's quite a, also what I'm looking for, it's quite a delicate program. It needs to be managed properly. So we're just going to use small numbers of maybe 10 students and 10 parents, and they have to be willing to sign up and all the ethics will be signed off. But essentially... I see warm technology as a way to really make an impact in this sort of field. I'm wondering if, um, because it's almost like, I mean, you know, 
I mean, we know that parents, you know, you, you don't go to some kind of school to learn how to be a parent. And, you know, we know that in things like mental health and some of the discussions we're having at school, um, they're not having that at home and therefore, and, you know, and, and it's, it's a shame because um, that learning or that, you know, that progress becomes more episodic, you know, and then they go home and it's a different reality and it's hard to reconcile that. But it's also kind of different um, trying to communicate to parents that actually coming in, this is not just some sort of tokenistic thing where you come in and just be present in an activity um, to be part of the school or to do something for your kid, but it's actually going to benefit you at home. It's delicate territory, but I'm I'm wondering, and I'm I'm quite optimistic. I wonder if you are too, that you've got a bit more currency now with parents because of the empathy they surely now have for what teachers have gone through for yeah. years. Everyone knows teachers are a difficult job, but they yeah. really know it now that they've had to homeschool their Twice kids as well. Two lockdowns as well, possibly three. Yeah. You're absolutely right, and I think that empathy has. I mean, I'm. Talking from the demographic of where I work, we've got very supportive parents who are really grateful for how supportive they are of the school and the work that we do for their for their young people. But I think you're right. I think that's another thing that COVID has potentially changed. And I think parents potentially are more interested now in what their kids are learning at school. I mean, I've had quite a few parents mention that um, when I've been teaching via Teams, so I've, I, the, the child is at home and all of a sudden me as a teacher is in their home. And quite a few parents have been listening and they found that quite interesting. They've been learning about stuff that they didn't know about. So they're learning too, you know, and they, they think it's quite funny that they can actually sit in the lessons now. And a lot of them do. And a lot of them sit in the background and listen to what you're saying. So when you're teaching a class of 30 students and they're all at home in their different environments, you've got to be thinking to yourself, maybe I'm teaching to 60, 30 parents and 30 students. Um, so it is, um, I think COVID has definitely changed that perspective, like you say. Well, it's a good opportunity now, isn't it, to to keep those uh, the barriers between school and community, you know, out of the way and just capitalize or capitalize, build on that shared understanding. Um, good moment to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like for, there's so many negatives associated with coronavirus. It's difficult to look past them, but I actually firmly believe that, you know, I, I mentioned the classroom after the storm. I think it will look different and storms aren't always a bad thing sometimes. Yeah. They can disrupt and they can, they can, when the dust settles, they can come back as more impressive than what they were initially. Absolutely. Yeah. And also you can be part of the, the, the healing process as well. You know, I mean, school, school is something, school is for some young people, it's the only safe place. And for some, it's kind of the reverse, you know, but um, certainly being there and being part of that with the parents um, it's the only way really I think to get um, you know a holistic kind of level of support for young people that have gone through this that are still processing the impact of it and will be for a long time I mean you're right I think that one of our biggest jobs as educators and as parents is just to rebuild the fractured college, uh, courage of the students post-covid because you know they're going to lose faith in exams in normality as, as school presents for them as you said so I think that rebuilding that courage is a huge part of what we've got to work on in the next year or so to get students' confidence back. Absolutely. And even more as well in countries that maybe don't have as much access to, to education. And I think yeah. that's a big, big, big challenge because we're talking about great initiatives that can benefit people or schools who can actually afford it. But taking these initiatives to a wider 
um, range of students, that's going to be the, the, the real challenge. And, and I, I hope that some, some governments actually in this case hop on that wave on the progressive way that we were talking about before. Definitely, definitely, yeah. Great. Alex, for me, it's been a pleasure having this, this conversation with you. Um, once again, very, very optimistic thoughts uh, and with also very real uh, life examples. So I, I really, really, really enjoy it. So thank you so much for your time today. And Mark, I don't know if you have anything else to add from my not end. Oh, but... no, it's been it's been inspiring as always. Um, not uh, I'm not overstating things at all when I say you guys are true heroes, you know, for what you do every day you really are, you know, so it's been great. Just really nice to just talk to people all the time who are um, everyone's in education for the right reasons. But there are people who are have kind of slowed down a little bit and are, you know, just kind of treading water and stuff and and people need to be carrying the torch forward. Um, and it's great to meet people like yourself who are doing that. And just, you know, I've come out of here with another 15 ideas and that's, that's, the, that's how it goes, right? That's what we want. I mean, that's what it's all about. And so what I, love, I, mean, I don't know about you guys, but I found lockdown because I'm teaching Sundays in schools, some at home and the days that I'm at home, I'm connecting with people all over the world. Like we've we got Scotland, England and Columbia, just in this chat. It's incredible, isn't it? Yeah. And it's it's so good. It's so good for your sort of your, your well-being for yourself as a teacher, just to like connect with like-minded people. So thanks for you. Thanks for inviting me on. Yeah. Thank you so problem. much, Alex. Anytime. Happy to have you again any other time. Brilliant. Fantastic. Well, thanks, guys. And have a good day or evening, wherever you are. Mm -hmm.